love your church and your staff, and man, we've had a great day. Um, I want to begin, I think, in James chapter 2 tonight. It's a little bit different direction, but it's right in line with what we've been talking about in terms of spiritual warfare, and uh, I ultimately just think we're supposed to be here this evening. And um, I did a study a couple years ago that radically shaped my understanding of sin, and if there's, if I could just be speak plainly to you, when you get around, I mean, and I can say this because I'm an ordained elder in our denomination. I'm, I, I do. I think, <laughs> I think we have. If you're not familiar with the Church of the Nazarene, I've heard people talk about, you know, doctrines and beliefs and denominations and all that, and probably should study up on that. You know, it's not all bad. Okay, there's not, not all that's bad in heritage and. And what we teach in terms of being transformed from within is just the best thing on the planet right now. I mean, seriously, it's just the best thing on the planet. And, I mean, I know there's, we're not just the only ones, okay? But I know with the group that I've chosen to run with, we believe that you can be a new creation, flat out. And uh, I've not only been experiencing that for, you know, 27 years, but... Uh, I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to preach anything uh, that I can't demonstrate. You know, I'm not going to talk about something I'm not living. We just can't do that. And so when we, but one of the one of the problems that our group, okay, and transformate transformative people, people that you know we would call them holiness movement, those kinds of things. Those that group tends to struggle from time to time with an abusive understanding of sin. Seriously. So much so that it makes people scared to respond to an altar, almost like, and I'll I'll be honest with you, what you're going to look at tonight, it's aggressive. And I picked it on purpose. Yeah, because I'm just going to be really frank with you. If it's been years and years and years since you've got up and responded, there is a, biblically, I can tell you, you have a, there's a problem there. I want you, I want to be your friend. I want you to like me. Okay? But I'm telling you, you should be growing. And I can prove it to you biblically. And, and, and it's not your fault. So I'm not scolding but there's been gen, just this abuse of the term sin. I have two different ways I describe this. And the first way would be you have a guy that messes up and is in trouble and has done some things that are wrong. And his response is, oh, I hope my dad doesn't find out. I'm in the other camp where the guy messes up, does some things horribly wrong, and is in a lot of trouble, and he says, I need to go talk to my dad. You clearly didn't get it. That was, I, I live here. I need to talk to my dad. Why? Because he loves me. And sin is inexcusable. We cannot tolerate it in our life. When we're talking about spiritual authority, one of the things we've been dealing with, and in fact, uh, just really quickly, if, just to give you a recap of where we've been, just our identity what we have in Jesus is just astounding. By the time you come down from uh, verses, down to verse 18 of chapter 1, just a little bit down maybe, just a little bit down. And from the beginning of verse 18 of chapter 1, I mean, Paul says, I pray also 
that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That literally means, he's not talking about your physical eyes, but he's talking about the eyes of your heart, your spiritual eyes. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened, okay, may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he's called you. Like he's describing this tremendous, this tremendous reality in your life. If you could only see who you are, right? If you could only see who you are. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What a sentence. In verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he demonstrates that power, or at least talks about that power, demonstrated in how he raised Jesus from the dead. And we're not talking about just raising Jesus. From, we're talking about a, a, a Jesus who took on the sin of the world and literally became everything that made us undesirable and unlovable and rebellious. Like on the cross, Jesus became the worst of humanity. He became the murderer. He became the abuser. Like when the father, look, he took that on him. In Isaiah chapters 52, the end, and then all the way through 53, I mean, he goes through and describes Jesus on the cross and said it was God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The beautiful thing about Jesus, what, what justification is, just really quickly, what justification is, it's not just God looking down at a murderer or a liar or whatever and saying, oh, I forgive you. You know, I'm just a God of love and it's no big deal. I forgive you. And then lets the murderer free to go murder. That we don't, we don't, that's not what the Bible teaches. That when God, that when God forgives you, he literally takes what was you, puts it on Jesus and it got punished on the cross. Jesus got everything you deserved. Literally, God didn't hold back anything. And the beauty of, 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 of redemption is that, the, is that the murderer, it's not that he just forgiven, which is wonderful. He's no longer a murderer. There's, there's just no better news than that. You do not have to be the way you've always been. You don't have to feel the way you've always felt. It's phenomenal. You don't have to carry around the stuff that you've always carried around. You don't have to live under the things that you've lived under. It's not that, and I talk with people, it's not that my past didn't happen. It's just that it doesn't have any bearing on my present. I can still remember it. It just doesn't define me. Isn't that good? That's so good. There's no, there's no better news than that. In fact, I was talking with one of the guys in the, he was still, when we were eating before service, he's still geeking out over it. He was like, justification's incredible. He goes, when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you as someone he's forgiven. He literally looks at you as if you've never done anything wrong. That's the depth of your redemption. You're like, that's, that's, that's true? Crazy, ain't it? This is what Paul's talking about. This is, who we, this is what we have. We don't limp through life. Peter just didn't limp after, I mean, and think, just really quickly, think about, especially those of you who are visiting, I know there's a whole group here that's visiting from, from somewhere else. I ain't going into it. But what amazed me, I'll be honest with you, just as frankly honest as I can be, um, I didn't have that much to offer. Um, I'm, not, I'm not ignorant. 
I've studied. I don't. I, I have the ability to learn. I'm not gifted like my sister. My sister is like she's annoying. She's been valedictorian of everything since birth. I mean, she's just seriously. She's a genius. My son takes after her, so he's annoying. Uh, you know, he's skipped a grade. He's graduating this year. You know, he's 16. He's just he's moving out soon. So, but uh, you know, I didn't have that gene. You know, I graduated. 87 out of 91 in my high school class. Seriously, the four guys below me were my best friends. We just made up the bottom of the roster. That is 100% the truth, okay? Now, I was high all the way through high school, so that probably makes some excuses. But when I was kicked out of the Marine Corps and I went to Olivet, brand new Christian, studied, my, studied myself to pieces, Got, graduated 2.7. You know, I'm just, I mean, I study and I'm knowledgeable, okay? But... I, that's not, I'm normal. I'm serious. I'm as normal as they come. And that was so appealing to me as a Christian because I'd never read the Bible. And when I read through the Bible, as honest, I, it was anticlimactic in many ways because there were, there were so many people. I just, I couldn't understand Jesus came to the world and he didn't go down to the seminaries. He went to tax collectors and ignorant fishermen. He didn't go to the, the best I mean, that's, seriously, I read that and I was like, man, that's my peeps right there. Just identify, identify with that group. You don't have to be, I mean, Paul said it best, the flesh counts for nothing. He's smart enough for both of you that I'm not going to base my life on this. I'm going to base my life on this. It's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal, I'm in, I'm in. He takes the, he takes the poor, he takes the downtrodden, he takes those who've just, aren't worth redeeming and redeems them. I want in that group. I want in that group. So he's your biggest fan. He's your biggest advocate, really. And there's just no room for pride in the kingdom. All of that is extremely significant when we're looking at the idea of sin. And I just want to begin really quickly. James is such a significant book because he's dealing with Jewish Christians. When you open up James to the very first uh, chapter. In fact, you, you come into the first statement. He's writing to the to 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And you say, why would you say tribes? That sounds like Jewish terminology. It was, because really for the first 15 years, 20 years, I mean, the church was Jewish. It wasn't until Rome came in under Titus and just wiped the whole place out that, uh, you know, the Gentile world really began to kind of take the initiative and leadership and and, you know, it became a Gentile, uh, predominantly a Gentile church at that point. But at the beginning, it was Jews. And one of the things that the Jews struggled with was the law. And what's so significant for you and I to understand, it's not that the law is bad. It's not that the law is gone. It's not that it serves no purpose. It does. It just cannot save you. The law was given to reveal sin. It was never given to produce righteousness. If you can be righteous by living according to the law, that's fantastic. You don't need Jesus. You don't even need to come to church because you've got the law. But the law was given to reveal sin. That way it was given to reveal our need for a Savior. That was the purpose of the law. And so the law for the Jews became this tremendous stumbling block, produced Pharisees, now, I know they're the official Pharisees, but there was a lens of a Pharisee that still surfaces today. 
So when we're looking at sin, we cannot look at sin from an old covenant kind of perspective. Sin in the New Testament is, is intensely relational. Okay, so this is the lens. And you may not get all of that, but it'll come clear as we go through because not only you're going to have to help me. Okay, so seriously, the Holy Spirit's going to help us understand that sin is a relational issue. It is a relational issue. Okay, so let's talk about this relational issue. In James chapter 2, what James does, are you with me so far? If you forgot all of that, one, you can go back and listen to it because we're recording it. Just listen to it over and over. In fact, this would be a good time to say this. What was I going to say? Okay, so on my, I have a Facebook. I have all this social media. I've got a YouTube channel. And the, all that stuff is free except for the, the website. I've got, I do have some books and T-shirts. I'm going to stick you for that because it costs me money. But everything else is free. And you can go and just study with me. Just study with me. And you can go back and watch those things and, 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 and listen and, and take notes. And, and you can even message me questions or whatever. But it really comes down, everything in Christianity comes down to God himself moves inside of my body. And I'm in a personal, that's an, old, that's an old line. Remember those lines? It's a personal relationship with him. We talked about that. That's the truth. Everything in Christianity revolves around you and Jesus kicking it 24-7. Okay, that's what Christianity is. And sin, whenever you talk about sin, sin is a relational issue. Sin is not a legalistic issue. That there's not, God never looks at you because you didn't do something correctly. So sin is relational. Now, so this is, this, is, this is how James begins. So in the first chapter of James, this is his big introduction, basically. And then at chapter 2, he begins to, dis, he begins to kind of cover issues that the church faces, trying to clear up some things. And it, we're, still, we're, we're still not cleared up on this today, in my opinion. And the first thing he talks about is sin. And he talks about it from a relational standpoint. This is so good. You're going to love this. It's so affirming. So he begins in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And in my New International Version, it's, it's entitled Favoritism Forbidden. And he says there in verse 1, Brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. It's a command statement in the original language. It's used four times in our New Testament. It's used several times in the Old Testament. But it's this idea that God doesn't show favoritism. Don't you show favoritism? Okay, now before we even look at what favoritism is, the fundamental is, back to this guiding principle in the New Testament, whoever God is, you're supposed to be. Whatever's going on inside of him is to go on inside of you. Now, I know the lens we often hear that is, oh, that's stressful. It's not stressful. It's not stressful. Because who he wants to transform you into is himself. And so it's right as rain. The longer you walk with him, the more you see like he sees, the more you feel like he feels. All of that, all that kind of, all of that terminology will begin to uh, apply to you. Because the father wants to take all the adjectives that describe him and he wants them to describe you. It's the beauty of the gospel. Favoritism is a betrayal of that. Okay? He says, don't show favoritism. Why? Because I don't show favoritism. And if God doesn't see in a particular way, you shouldn't see in a particular way. If God doesn't feel in a certain way, you shouldn't feel a certain way. Period. You're like, well, what's favoritism? Favoritism actually is a compound Greek word, and it means outward countenance. That's what favoritism means. It's outward countenance or outward face. And we translate it favoritism or preference or partiality because it literally means I prefer you because of your outward. The illustration he gives in verse 2 is a person who has money. 
So if someone who comes in who has money and you like them better than someone who doesn't have money, you've shown favoritism. Okay? Yeah, so I like you because you have money. I like you. This is a big one for teens. I like you because you're good looking. I like you because you're athletic. And that's, that's, that's young stuff. Okay? You're all beautiful. Ain't gonna last. No, I'm serious. Seriously, look at them. Look at that. That is where you are headed right there. I know. She's like, that's horrifying. I know. I know. I'm glad I'm not old. But, I mean, it's, it's going to happen. Okay? So, so youth, agility, flexibility, newness, that's youth stuff. Okay? Yeah. So you don't show favoritism. I don't favor because of the outside. That's something that's, that the younger generation struggles with. And, and what's, so sad, what's so sad is that's not just physical, that's a spiritual condition. Because if you begin to favor, your, favor yourself based off the physical, based off your money, based off your looks, let's stick with looks, you'll end up being that 45-year-old woman who's still trying to look 20 and not quite getting it done. Isn't that sad? And you just look at her and say, wow, why would she do that? She's been doing that her whole life. This is terrible. I should not. I'm being recorded. But it comes up. And I just want to say it. And I'm like, is it from the Spirit? Of course it is. (laughs) You would think. But so I took this, I can't say it. But it's like really funny. Maybe I should say a little bit of it. Should I say it? Dude, it's hysterical. So I had my daughter take this picture of me in this obnoxious pose where I'm posing from behind and all this. And I I put this statement with it. It said, my name is Jeremiah Bullock. And I was going to put this on Instagram. And and, I I was making fun of all the people on Instagram. Yeah, so I knew I should have said it. But the point is, the point is, is that's what all of this is. Stop doing that. Yeah, stop doing that. Come on, man. Stop doing that. The only reason I'm on Instagram is because of, of, I mean, it's just ministry. There is a, in this day and age, there is a standard that's being promoted for young men and women that is flesh, that's all outward. And all of that reeks of it. Just run from it because it's not just physical, okay? It's not, there's, it's not bad being beautiful, okay? Okay, it's a burden. I mean, I've, I've had to carry that for years, okay? So, I mean, seriously, I, I know what that feels like. But I'm not going to get my identity through outward stuff, okay? We've got to get in the passage. We're going we're gonna to get in trouble. So what, 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 what James writes is he says, listen, don't show favoritism. Do not see people through the flesh, Well, if I don't see them through the flesh, how do I see them? I see them through his eyes. So your value is not based on your outward. Your value is based on the inside. Okay? Now, he'll deal with this the whole letter. But when he talks about sin, this is how he talks about it. When you come down to verse 9. So this is the context of how he introduces sin. So he says in verse 9, if, and it begins with but, so we're going to throw that conjunction out because we're just going to look at verse 9. But he says, if you show favoritism, Now, what's favoritism? Favoritism, fundamentally, is the way he sees you, I don't see you. Okay, so if you show favoritism, if you view people from the outward, from their outward countenance, okay, if you view people outwardly, and you don't see their value through his eyes, he says you sin, first off, and, and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. I'm not going to go through all the grammar, but there's a progression in that sentence. You sin and end up being a lawbreaker. Sin and lawbreaking, hear me, listen, 
Sin and lawbreaker, this is important. Sin and lawbreaker, those are two different Greek words for sin. Here's how complex sin is in, our, in the scriptures. There are 33 different variations of the word for sin in our New Testament. 33. Like, that's ridiculous. That's a ton. They're like, why are there that many? It's almost like it's a big topic. Okay? Those 33 variations come down to what we call lexical forms. Okay? And you say, what do you mean by lexical forms? Well, you have like the word run. Okay? And then, of course when you want to use that in a certain way in a sentence, it may morph into running or runner or runded. That's what we say in Tennessee. Uh, or ran or having run. Okay, there's all these different ways to, to talk about the word, but it comes from run. So these 33 different Greek words come down to 10 individual Greek words for sin. Okay. And these two words here that we translate sin and lawbreaker, those are among those 10. Now, those 10 different Greek words for sin fall into two basic categories. There's really only two ways in Scripture to talk about sin, which is why he mentions two in this verse. There are two different kinds of sin. The first kind of sin, that, and we'll deal with it in order, so if you show favoritism, if you don't see the way he sees, you sin. This is the first kind of sin in the New Testament. That word, hamartia, literally means error. It means something that's wrong. It's not, really it's not really emphasizing motive, okay? It's just saying this is not correct. Most of the time how I find that word is used, it's not used for rebellion because they've got other words for rebellion that they use when they want to highlight that. This word is just talking about something that's not correct. It's just wrong. It's not right. It needs to be fixed. There's something broken. That's this word. Now, what's interesting as he talks about it is when this error of not seeing the way he sees. So he's talking about an individual that just doesn't see, doesn't see men, doesn't see girls, doesn't see money, doesn't see the highway when he drives, doesn't see conflict. He doesn't see his self. He doesn't see certain relations. He doesn't see the way God sees. He's broken. You ever heard that before? People talk how they're, they're walking in brokenness or they're broken people. That's what this is. Yeah, they're not evil. This is not a rebellion issue. They're just not correct. We're going to spend a lot of time on that tonight. So you have this individual that doesn't see the way God sees. Well, what happens is he brings conviction. Okay? There's favoritism, you sin, and are convicted. And the reason God brings conviction is because he loves you. He doesn't want you to live broken. And the word, this word conviction in the book of Revelation is almost exclusively translated exposed. So what happens is when you're, when you're broken and you're not seeing the way or living the way or, or behaving the way. Let me give you a perfect example of this. We, we go to teen camps. And I see, I, see, uh, I see girls and guys acting and dressing in a way that does not, it's not consistent with who they are in Christ. They just don't, they just don't. And I'm, I'm normally bewildered until I see mom show up and dad show up and then I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, just a younger version, okay? And so there's this, they're, they're, they're not right. There's something off. It doesn't mean they're bad kids, that's where discipleship comes in. Conviction is one of the be most beautiful form of discipleship. It is. It's literally where God exposes the area of your life where you don't look like him. That's what he does. So he comes to where you don't talk right, you don't act right, you don't speak right. Um, 
Okay, we'll give examples of this stuff later. So he comes and, and he gives you and, and he exposes. He exposes where you're not correct. The problem is, is once he exposes error in your life and you don't respond to it, then you become into a new category of law-breaking. And law-breaking literally means rebellion. The, uh, the word lawbreaker is a compound Greek word that means to step around. So you literally step around something. I love it because Jesus uses not this term, but some other terms like it when he's speaking to the leaders of Israel about, um, you remember the, the Good Samaritan story? And he's trying to talk about their identity. And he gives this story of uh, these, all these religious folk that are walking by. And there's this, this, this uh, Jew that's beaten and bloodied and hurt on the side of the road and he needs help. And all these religious individuals come by, you know, Pharisee, there's a, all these different individuals. Well, they're coming by and they know what they're supposed to do. But instead of doing what they're supposed to do, they pass by. So it's this idea in the verse that God comes and shows you an area of your life where you don't look like him. You're malfunctioning. And he says, I want to heal you of this. Rebellion is, I don't want to look like you. Yeah, I don't want to feel like you do. I don't want to see women the way you see women. I don't want to see my husband the way you see my husband. I don't want to see money the way you see money. I'm not interested in operating the truth. I want to make my own version of it. Why? And you become this lawbreaker. It literally means a rebel, a rebel one who steps around. And what's crazy is I meet all these people who live in church. There's not a ton of those, honestly. But I do meet people from time to time who live in church who are looking at God and saying, I still want to go to heaven. I just don't want to look like you. <laughs> That's what rebellion is. That's what a lawbreaker is. So when you're, rebe- when, you're re- when you're living in sin and you're saying, when you're rebelling, that's ultimately what you're doing. In fact, what's even more, we're going to find out in a bit, is you're saying, I don't want you to save me here. See, God, what's so beautiful, and we're going to explain this, but I'll go ahead and say it now and then I'll re-say it. God, you are never condemned for being wrong. You're condemned you condemn yourself when you refuse to let him write you. That's the good news. No one is ever condemned for being wrong or being broken. No one. You're condemned is when he comes and exposes it and says, you're broken here, let me help you. And you say, I don't want to be helped. Hell, this, we say this, we've been saying this for years, but hell was biblically, the, the narrative of hell, it was created for the devil and his angels. And none of us were to go there. God didn't create it for us. In fact, he's done everything so we don't have to go. So if you end up condemned in hell, it's not because he sent you there. You refused to let him correct you. You refused to let him make you whole. You're literally without excuse. There's, we get this idea of heaven and hell, like God's going to be like, well, you know, if you went to church a little bit more. <laughs> that's, so, that's so silly. That is nowhere in there, okay? Seriously, that's not what it is. We're going to know because everything's going to be revealed at the last day. And you're just going to be standing there, absolutely just transparent. And the testimony will be, I didn't, I just don't want to look like you here. That's what sin is. I don't want to be healed. I don't want to be transformed. Like this idea that God can't save you, dude, he's God. 
He can transform anything you have. That's ridiculous. He could transform anything. He could take a murderer and just, wow, and he did. Several of them in scripture. And just turn something beautiful out of their life. It's, it's ridiculous. So there's nothing you've been through that can leave you wallowing in self-doubt and, and pity and destruction and depression. You just don't have to live that way. I'm not ignoring the things that you're going through, but they don't define you. It's really difficult to describe until you just experience it. Now, let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. So here's what we're talking about, okay? So James says he wants to introduce sin to us, and he introduces this idea of favoritism. It's only mentioned four times in the New Testament because everybody understands it. Your value and worth is not on your outside. Your value is not in your money. You can't take it with you. Yeah, you're going to age, okay? So this, none of this is do not put your hope in this kind of stuff. In fact, he says at the beginning of the book where moth can destroy and all of that, okay? So we don't put our value here. And we not only don't put our value here, but I don't value you here either. Your value is in that you were created by God for God for this hour. So I see you through the eyes of the Father. Now, where that doesn't happen, we call that sin. I'm not seeing properly. So God comes and says, hey, you're not seeing the way I'm, you're supposed to see. And if you respond, you're righted. He, he righteously corrects you. We're going to talk about that later. If you say no, that's what rebellion is. And ultimately what you're saying is, I don't want to look like you. I'm not interested in seeing the way you see. So let me give you another example of this. If you have your Bibles, and we're going to look at this um, in 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 16 and 17. And I always say this, probably not completely accurate, but I think it's great. If you ever want to study a book on sin, uh, Romans is like ridiculous. And you can study it, and you will be studying it the rest of your life. Okay? It's like really good and really deep. But if you want to study another book that's real, it's just a little easier to understand, 1 John is wonderful. The whole book revolves around this intimate personal relationship with the Father and what sin looks like in that relationship and why we don't tolerate it. And John doesn't use a lot of the language that Paul does. Paul, like, may, there's, there's, there's language that Paul uses in his writings. It doesn't even appear in secular Greek. He, like, makes it up. You're like, you can make up words when you're Paul, when you're Paul, you can. And John, he's not, he's not educated. You guys want some bonus material? We're moving along quickly. So um, the disciples were ignorant fishermen. Peter has some of the most sophisticated Greek grammar in all the New Testament. And you're like, wow, kind of a closet stud, uh, new. No, he was head of the church and he had a scribe. He had a lot of things, act, you know, accessible to him. John did not. John wrote most of his letters out of his own hand, and he, he writes in the style of a fisherman. He uses, instead of using complex grammar and big words, he uses small, easy-to-understand language and loads it with meaning. So, for instance, he refers to God as light, and where God is not is darkness. He talks God is life, and without God is death. And so we as Christians who walk with God right now experience eternal life, and those who are not walking with him experience eternal death. And so he takes these kind of terms and loads them with meaning. So we're going to see some of that. In verse 16, and this is really neat, 
I'm giving you chapter 5, which is the last chapter. This is like the punchline of everything that he's talking about during sin. And then I'm going to go back and look at some particulars. So he says in verse 16 of chapter 5, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin, that word is uh, hermetia, it means error. So if anyone sees his brother commit an error that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. Pause. Now you're going to say, hold on. There's sin that doesn't lead to death? What does that mean? What does it mean, doesn't lead to death? Well, God is life, and apart from him is death. And if we as Christians accept him, we will inherit eternal. And if not, you will inherit eternal death. So he's talking about a sin that doesn't lead you into separation from God. You're like, hold on, there's sin that's okay? Didn't say it's okay, but there's sin that doesn't separate you from God. You say, what do you mean? It's sin that doesn't lead to death. Uh, I call this two-year-old sin. Do you ever go by the two-year-old department? Do you ever go by the nursery? Look at all those little sinful heathens in there, (laughs) your kids. Seriously, beating each other with Tonka trucks and, you know, just all this horrible stuff. Your kids. Yeah. Okay, we walk by. In fact, we, we talk about the terrible, we talk about the terrible twos, you know. Yeah, they're not evil, I don't think, okay. They're just not, they're in error, okay. In other words, and I don't care what generation you're from, you do not look at a two-year-old and say, that's normal. No, it's not. It's not. In fact, we, we try to discipline them out of that. We, we parent them out of that phase of their life. They're not evil. They just don't know any better. They're operating in error. It's mine and no and ah, and they're just, it's the terrible twos, okay? Now, knowing that, that it's not correct behavior, it's error, it's harmatia, okay? At the same time, no one walks by the nursery and is like, wow, those kids are going to hell, man, okay? Yeah, no one says that. Why? Because they're not condemned for being that way. Why? They don't know any better. Now, if you continue to act like that, in a board meeting at 45, guess where you're going? Yeah. Dustin will talk about that in a couple weeks, I'm sure, up from the pulpit. But what's the difference between a two-year-old and a 45-year-old? Dude, you know better. Come on. You know better. He's spoken to us about that. So this is what he's talking about. He says, if anyone sees his brethren commit a sin, living in error, that doesn't lead to death. They're not doing it on purpose. They're just broken. It's the young person and how they act, how they dress. It's a brand new believer and how they talk. How do you expect them to talk? How do you expect them to talk? A wolf is going to be a wolf. This is how they are. It's going to take some time to unwolf them. That's just off the top of my head. I've got to stop doing that. I've got to start sticking with notes. <laughs> Leave me alone, Phil. So he says, listen, if anyone sees his brother behaving this way in sin that does not lead to death, dude, he should pray, and God will give him life. What does that mean? Literally, the idea of prayer there, literally, there's several words for prayer. I'm convinced this one, when you, ex- when you kind of extrapolate it out, it has the idea of discipleship. And, and you guys have that here. He's, I, I've already heard you guys him talk about it. You have discipleship classes. You know, you have membership classes. You have small groups. You have Sunday school. Those are discipleship. You need those. Why? It's, it's where you work out and learn about who you are. 
what we're doing this week. It's really, really significant. So this is the first kind of sin he talks about. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, dude, he should pray that God will give him life. Disciple that guy. Embrace him. Walk in relationship. Put your arm around. Get to know. That's what you do. But then he makes this a distinction. I refer to those who sin does not lead to death. There is, now up on the screen and here, it will say there is a sin, but there is no definite article in the original language. And you're like, what's a definite article? You don't need to know. Okay? He's not talking about a particular kind of sin. He's talking about a category. He says there is a category of sin that leads to death. And he says, I'm not just saying, this is huge, listen. He says, I'm not just saying you should pray about that. So there's sin that doesn't lead to death. There's two-year-old sin. There's children who act like children because they don't know any better. There's new believers that act like new believers because that's what new believers act like. But then there's the sin that leads to death. And what's that? That's the sin that God has revealed to you and says, I want to fix you, and you say no. And he says, I'm not saying you should just pray about that. And if you want to know how the New Testament people dealt with that, go talk to Paul. Paul said, warn a brother once, warn him twice. After that, grab him by the shirt, by the cop, by the... And, Chuck, Mary, Margaret out in the parking lot. Yeah, we ain't tolerating that. Seriously, we're not going to tolerate that. I should give some illustrations. You'd be shocked and startled the things I've been in. I was at this church in Florida years ago, and there was this group of guys, and they were all talking weird. And one of the guys pulled me aside and goes, yeah, that's this guy over here. And he was having an affair on his wife. And I'm like, you guys know about it? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's difficult. Have you said anything? Well, no. I'm like, you sissy? Are you kidding me? You're going to tolerate that? No, you can't tolerate that. Why? Because I love you too much. You cannot do this. What are you thinking? You're telling her, I'm telling her. Or Dustin will. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not, we're not going to do this. Why? Because I love you too much. Are you kidding me? That's a bit fundamental deal. Well, I'm just praying for him. I'm praying for you. That's what I'm praying for. So there is sin, there is error that leads to death. And that's, that's error that's revealed to you that you, re, you, persist, you persist in. Now, he, then he ends it in verse 17 and he says, let me clarify, all wrongdoing is sin. Neither, even if it's, rebe if it's rebellion, if it's error that you're rebellion in or it's still error, it's still wrong. Yeah, it's still wrong which is why God is speaking to you about it. I don't want you to see this way. I don't want you to feel this way about yourself, okay? But there's sin that does not condemn you. And he's such a pastor, man. Dude, he's such a pastor. He's looking at his people. And I, I've said this once and I got killed over it, but I'm gonna say it again because I like it. Some of the error that you're living in is due to things that happened to you that are not your fault. Seriously, there's things you're, and, and it's interesting. People's like, well, once you get saved and once Jesus, you know, you're sanctified. I know the doctrine. And, it, you know, it cleanses your inner nature and all that. You're perfected. Uh, no, you're not. That's why, in fact, if I, maybe I should teach on this sometime. Not, you should go listen. I've teached on it out there somewhere. Enti initial sanctification, you get saved, you're justified, you stop sinning, you're in a perfect relationship with Jesus Christ. Entire sanctification, your nature is cleansed and you participate and share in his nature. You're, you're literally purified from within. From entire sanctification, initial, entire, from entire until ultimate sanctification, which is where you croak, from that point until this point, we call that, John Wesley called that growth in grace. 
Meaning, you don't even start to grow until entire sanctification. And all of these crisis points that you will come about, they're strongholds in your mind where you literally are operating in error and didn't know it. You're like, are you sure? Let me give you an example. Pull up, if you would, brother, a couple passages. 1 John, and we'll just scroll down a few verses. How about Look at 1 John chapter 5. The first four verses of 1 John, where am I at? That didn't work out. There we go. The first four verses of 1 John is this lengthy description of who Jesus is. Okay? He calls it life manifest. He says that life appeared. You want to know what real life is? Living the dream. That life of God, like the full, unadulterated life of God, unpolluted, absolutely perfect. Are you listening with me? The unpolluted, undiminished life that you can have and live in every day, that life appeared in a person. And his name was Jesus. That's what he says in the first four verses. Then he comes into verse five and he says, uh, verse, verse, verse five, he says, this is the message we heard from him. In other words, I didn't cook this up at Starbucks. I didn't learn this in some college. That person who demonstrated that life that, that I can live, this is what he told me. This is the message we heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we're a liar. That's aggressive. Here's what he says. God is this. God is not, he uses really, like, really little, like, easy to understand language. Okay? God is this. God is not that. If you claim to be wrapped up into him, this is how he begins his letter. If you claim to be wrapped up in him and you're tolerating this in your life, something is seriously wrong with you. Like this is, dude, Christianity is not rocket science. Just never say no to him, ever. And you'll be good. There's nothing in there about being perfect. It's all about I'm walking with him. And wherever, whatever he reveals in my life that doesn't look like him, I respond. In fact, that's where he goes to. In, my, in fact, he moves down immediately. And the first thing he starts talking about is sin. And he comes down to verse 8. And 1 John 1, 8 is my favorite verse in the whole Bible simply because it makes old-time Nazarenes uncomfortable. Verse 8, let's walk through this. If we, is we singular or plural? Plural. If we claim, claim is in the present tense. Let me double check. Present tense. Yes, so if we claim, actually that's in the aorist tense. I should stop, I should stop, I should check before I say it, without sin is. But if we claim, if we claim, okay, so it's, it's plural and it applies to everybody. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, think about it. This is plural and it applies to everyone right now from, for all time. That's what the aorist tense means. If we claim to be without sin, if anyone in this room says, I have no sin in my life, you are deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. You're deceived. You're deceived. Now, immediately people are going to say, hold on, we don't believe in a sinning religion. Yeah, but what kind of sin are you talking about? In verse 8, the word for sin there is harmatia, which means error. 
So in other words, if you claim to be without error, if you're sitting there and like, I'm perfect, just waiting to go to heaven. First off, ask your wife. And if she won't tell you, ask me. Or Kara. Dustin may not, Kara will. Okay? Yeah, if you claim, if you've claimed you arrive and you have no room for growth, seriously, come on. And he gives you this picture. He gives you this picture of, of Christians. He's talking about himself He's t- to his whole group and anybody who reads this letter. If any of us say we're perfected and we have no room to grow, that every area of our life is perfect and we're never going to, you're deceived. Yeah, we're going to be, we're going to spend the rest of our earthly lives being perfected. He's going to reveal areas of our life where we don't look like him, we don't see like him, and we're going to go, which is why we still come to church and we still come to the altar. That's what I was mentioning earlier. If you're, seriously, I've I've met people that hadn't been to the altar in like 50 years and testify about it. 50 years ago, I came down to the altar and I haven't been since because I'm perfect (laughs) and have no friends. Yeah, they don't say that, but that's what everybody else says. That there's something wrong with that. We're supposed to be growing. I'm growing like a weed. So if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be without error. But if we confess our errors, like the Lord, remember the progression? The Lord will come and reveal where you don't look like him. And if we confess those errors... He's faithful and just to not only forgive us of those errors, but purify us from them. You know what purify means? It's literally the washed white as snow language. So God not only forgives you, you see, he comes and he reveals it to you. He reveals it to you. Hey, you're broken and you're at a point in your life where you're ready for me to deal with this one. There's some stuff coming down the pipe, but you're not ready yet. We need to deal with this first. And he reveals it to you. And then when you confess it, say, oh, I didn't know I looked like that. I thought I was perfect. We're going to deal with that one down the road. But right now, you've got this area of your life where you don't look like me. So he reveals it. And then when you confess it, he purifies you from it. He literally transforms you. I don't think the way that I used to think. I just don't think that way. I'm being transformed in many ways. I don't respond the way that I used to respond. I just don't like, you know, discipline myself to not act that way. I don't feel that way. I'm new. I'm I'm just different. The first half of his book, he talks about that kind of relationship with the Father. We're in this perpetual, we're in this perpetual mode of being transformed into his likeness. That's error. By the time he comes to chapter 3, and I'm going to read this. There's a translation out that... uh, I'm not, I don't like it every verse, but I really like it in 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. Do you have the Passion Translation up there by any chance? If you don't, don't bring it up. Because I want, you, I, want, I want everybody to, if you don't, don't bring up any other one. If you have the Passion Translation, you can. But in verse 4, listen to this. This is so good. It's like over the years you've had some paraphrase translations, you know, with the Living Bible. Uh, I think when, uh, when I was in college, a couple years. I don't know if we was in college at the same time. I don't think so. But um, remember the message? I was ahead of you. Is that what it was? Remember uh, Eugene Peterson, the message? I don't know if anybody remembers that. That, that, was a, that was a paraphrase. Well, there's a new one out. It's called the Passion Translation. It's actually not that new. But I really like how it words this, this passage. So the first half of the book, he talks about error in our life that God reveals where we don't look like him. 
And he says, listen, I know you didn't see this, but you've got to let this go. You've got to let me help you with this. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but you've got to let me deal with this because you're producing collateral damage and you don't even know it. I'm not blaming you. You didn't see it. It's error. So he, bring, he reveals it to you. And when you say, oh, and when he reveals it to you, he, you literally, you see it. Then you confess it. I confess that. And then he purifies you from it. If you say, no, I'm not interested in changing, this is the next thing he talks about. You able to follow me? It's pretty easy, right? In verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, anyone who indulges in sin, that's error, lives in moral anarchy. So once he reveals error and you continue to indulge in it, you're in trouble. For the definition of sin is breaking God's law. The definition of continually living in error, that's the definition of a a rebellious person, a lawbreaker. Verse 5, and you know without a doubt that Jesus was revealed to eradicate sins. It was to eradicate error. And there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in union with him will not sin. But the one who continues sinning hasn't seen him with discernment or known him by intimate experience. So when he's talking about sin here, what you need to understand, he's talking about the error that you indulge in. So he's going to use like indulge. He's going to use the word like continuing. He's going to use those kinds of terms. So he's talking about error that you know about and you just go right on living in it. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Listen to how he describes it in more detail. Verse 7. Delightfully loved children, don't let anyone divert you from this truth. The person who keeps doing what is right proves that he's righteous before God, even as Jesus is righteous. But the one who indulges in a sinful life is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God was revealed was to undo and destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, everyone who's truly God's child will refuse to keep sinning because God's seed remains in him. He is unable to continue sinning because he's been fathered by God himself. Here is how God's children can be clearly distinguished from the children of the evil one. Anyone who does not demonstrate righteousness and show love to fellow believers is not living with God at his source. Isn't that phenomenal? Like that dude killed it. It's just not rocket science. Once God reveals error to you, you have to release it. He's trying to help you. And ultimately, if you don't release it, you live in moral anarchy and you're separating yourself from God. God's not sending you you to hell. You're literally leaping. If you're living in rebellion tonight, listen. You're, You're literally opening the door for the enemy to come in and take residence. That's what you're doing. You're opening up the door for the enemy to come into your life and take residence. It's just a wide open door. And he's going to wreak havoc in your life. Don't say no. If you're lying, stop lying. And yes, lying to your parents is lying. Yeah, you're involved in, 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 in sexual sin, which is more than just porn. If you're into fornication... That's, teens call that, we're not going to have sex, we're just messing around. That's called fornication. (laughs) Everybody's like, really? (laughs) Yeah, it's called sin, man. You mean just looking on Facebook, just looking at the pictures? Yeah, that's called fornication. We got a lot to talk about, apparently. 
<laughs> you say things, people are like, I'm looking at you. Yeah, there's a whole category. You should go look at it. When the Holy Spirit says, I don't look at her that way. I don't look at him like that. Yeah, stop. And say, Jesus, come in my life and change me. Because I don't want to see people like objects. I just don't want to see that way. I don't want to be nasty and bitter. I don't want to be griping all the time. I don't want to be a complainer. I don't want to be a slanderer. That's just not his nature. Okay? So that's sin. If that's going on in your life, you need to repent and respond immediately tonight. You don't have to. Do whatever you want to do. Good luck. Have fun. Seriously, just help, help yourself. See you on the go-around. Sins, that, that's easy to understand. The difficult one to understand is error. And I, don't, I can't figure out if it's pride. I don't want to get up and respond in front of everybody. I don't know if it's pride. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or if it's a mixture of both. I'm not really sure what it is. But a lot of the error that, we're, that, that we deal with, which is, in my opinion, much more, I'm say, I say this deliberately, er, not unconfessed error, but error that's recently been revealed to you that I'm broken and what do I do with this? I feel trapped. That is, those kinds of, that's a pandemic in our churches today. There are people that are living less than victorious in their life, not because they're evil or bad, but they've just, they've not understood that, listen, what happened to you wasn't your fault. And even how you responded, I'll give you an example of this. So um, I, uh, I went through a, I went through this season in my life where the Lord was like dealing with me on some relational issues with uh, my, my family. And uh, I have a mom that loves me. She's awesome. But as a kid, I had, uh, as a kid, I had, I had some issues going on in my life. And I had some hard feelings that developed between me and my mom. And I'm on my way back from this conference. It's just a couple years ago. And I kid you not, as clear as a bell, I heard in my I heard in my ear, you need to forgive your you need to forgive your mom. And of course, I my response is, hey, I already did. He's like, this is God. <laughs> yeah, because I could you know I told everybody I did, and I could show up, and I could smile, and I could act like I did, and all that. But he knows the truth. And uh, I had there was tension there that I didn't even realize that was been there so long was tension. And. Uh, unbidden, he literally brought this picture in my mind. It's a lot of what we were talking about today. He just brought this picture before my mind. I didn't go searching. I was just driving my car and it was stunned and he took me back to, I was about nine, eight or nine years old and my mom was with my sisters in the bathroom and they were getting ready and, and uh, my dad was never around and he ended up leaving and so I was on the outside and I remember banging on the door as a kid. I wanted to come in and uh, you know, obviously I'm a guy, they're girls and, uh, but I'm banging on the door, and my mom opens the door, and well, at least what I remember when that thing came to me was, uh, we're having girl time. Go away and shut the door. And I was devastated. I was devastated. And I remembered it. And I watched myself. I know this sounds crazy, but I watched myself make this ungodly statement that the enemy was just waiting and I was like, I'm done with you. 
I'm writing you off. I don't love you. We're done. And I cut her off. And I didn't know it then, but even after that, my mom had always told me, something's changed about you. And I literally came into agreement with the enemy and how he wanted my relationship to be with my, my mom. And the Holy Spirit said it goes all the way back to that. Now, I wasn't, it was a, I was a little kid. I didn't know any better. Was I evil? Of course I wasn't evil. I almost want to say it wasn't my fault. I mean, it was my fault, but I, I didn't know any better. And the Lord says, I'm revealing this to you because you're going to pass that. You're demonstrating a relationship with your mom to your kids. This is really, this is what this was. And he goes, you've got to repent of that. And I did. I confessed what I did. He knew all about it. And I just said out loud, I come out of agreement with what, with that. I come out of agreement with that statement. I no longer feel that way about my mom. And I come into agreement with how you feel about my mom. And I felt it. I felt different. And I've watched that relationship begin to heal over the last couple of years. And it's tremendous. But it came back to an error in my life that wasn't rebellion. It wasn't like, you know, I wasn't a, I mean, come on, I was a Christian two years ago. I love Jesus. But I had, I had a stronghold in between me and my mom. And whatever you want to, however you want to put that in your theological basket and put it back on the shelf, help yourself. But all I'm telling you is there, there was something in my life that he revealed that I had to let go of. And that's in that growth in grace category. And I see it all the time. I see, I see people that come to, and you can tell. You can tell. You, 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 you can almost see the things that people just wear in their life and, and they carry around. And, and what's so beautiful is that the Lord's going to reveal that to you and probably already has revealed that to you. And one of the biggest deterrents to responding, and I believe physical response is necessary in this kind of stuff, one of the biggest deterrents is people are like, well, what are people going to say? They're going to say, finally, I've been waiting for that dude to respond for 10 years. I hope no one knows. Everybody knows. You'll hear it as you're walking to the altar. It's about time, Harv. Yeah, it's okay. You don't have it all together. And even if you think so, no one else does. I use humor, it softens the blow. I'm actually punching you in the spirit really hard. But would you respond? You don't have to be bitter and nasty and cranky and selfish. You just don't have to be. You don't have to be that way. And you don't have to carry around that luggage that you've carried around your whole life. There's two kinds of sin in a church. Obviously, there's rebellion that goes on. I get that. But I believe the real, and you need to respond if, if, if you have that, but the real pandemic in the church is people that are carrying around error, abuse, rejection. There's a whole list of stuff. And that it just colors every relationship in their life. And they pass that down. And you, you can be free from that. I do. I just, I'm telling you, there's nothing like freedom Christianity can be exhausting when it's performance-based. In fact, uh, Dustin and I were talking about this today. Like, I've met evangelists who are just, and pastors even, that are exhausted. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to do this. I've got to, I mean, it probably is a generational thing, but like, I'm one of the most, I'm one of the most busy guys that I know. I'm, you know, 
but it is. It's, we were talking about today, it's motivated by love. I love people. I do, I love people. And when, I love people. And Christianity is just not exhausted when you're motivated by love. Yeah, when you're motivated by him, you just, it's, it's not exhausting. It's freeing. And I do, I want you to have that. As a teen, I want you to have that. You can't, you can't live up under the standards of the world. You can just embrace how he sees you. Be free. And every area of your life where you don't feel like you ever read something in the word and you're like, well, that's not me. It can be. You can be a new creation. So, Father, we love you tonight. And I've been changing my language. I love how much you love me. And I do. I adopt the new motto that every time I'm in trouble, I run to my dad. The word Abba has been misunderstood, apparently. It doesn't mean father. It means Papa. When I'm in trouble, I run to my dad. When I'm afraid, I run to my dad. When I need encouragement, I run to my dad. When I need advice, I run to my dad. I want to have an unbroken communication relationship with my dad. And I'm a handful, Jesus. I'm not always going to say the right thing. I'm not always going to do the right thing. but I'm going, to let, I'm going to let you tailor me until I become the right person because the right person always does the right thing. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. One of the most, one of the things, <laughs> this sounds crazy, but one of the things I've had to repent of this year is passion. They never saw that one coming. I've hurt a lot of people through being passionate. So I'm done with being passionate. I want to be led. I want to be led by the Spirit. I don't want to be led by passion. I don't want to be led by the right cause. I don't want to be led by the right verse. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I want to be led by my Father who is love because he's irresistible. I'm sure you have areas of your life where, where we need to grow tonight. So we're going we're gonna to put the sanctuary back the way it was when we came in, which is a beautiful, it's kind of an, it sets the atmosphere of response. And um, maybe some of you who were here last night didn't get a chance to respond and uh, you need to just grab your husband's hand and just say would you come pray with me because you guys know each other could you come pray with me could you grab your wife's hand and could, could you come pray with me I want to bring this before the Lord you know this issue that's been plaguing our marriage for the last 40 years hey, let's bring this before the Lord I believe he can heal us tonight hey let's go and, let, let, let's go and uh, let's go and uh, let's go play, pray for our grandkids Let's go, let's go pray for our children. We're, you know, I'm, I'm tired of living in guilt. I'm tired of not being able to forgive myself. That's a whole other category of people I'm seeing in the church. It's huge. We forgive people, but we can't forgive ourselves. You know what that means? Every, I'm going to say this really quickly, and then I'll, I'll shut up. But a telltale sign of the enemy in your life is that the enemy will always speak about your future. I just learned this in my own life. The enemy always comes to me and threatens me with my future or reminds me of my past. 
neither of which the Holy Spirit ever does. In fact, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Hey, come on, don't stress about what tomorrow, today. Live in the now with him. Because the enemy's going to come and go, oh, what, what about this? You know, this is going to happen. What if this happens? It's all the what if stuff. And it's always accompanying with fear and anxiety. That's the enemy. That's his body odor. Or he'll come to you and, and with regret point you to your past. You've got to let that go. Because the Holy Spirit never does that. Why? Because Jesus paid the penalty for your past. Isn't that beautiful? So you can you got some things maybe you need to let down tonight. And I get it. Maybe you can't. You're, you're thinking, hey, I'm so old. If I come down here and kneel, I'm never getting up again. Okay? Yeah, I saw you walk in. I get it. But you can stand up where you're at. Seriously, you can stand up where you're at. And you can be a testimony, buddy, everybody in here. I'm growing. I'm 91 years old and I'm growing. But the rest of you, if he speaks to you tonight, let's, let's get free. And let's just spend, we're, we're, we're a couple minutes till we have to close. Let's just, let's, let's just tell him how wonderful he is. Let's minister to the Lord, which is what worship is. Let's minister to him. Let's tell him how much we love him. Let's, let's heap praise upon him. Let's glorify his name. And I'm trusting that you're going to respond. Any of you need to stand up that can't respond? Any of you need to come down that can? Now's the time. Father, in these moments, we want to worship you. Set us free. And Father, for those specifically, let me just take two seconds for this, Lord. Would you guide them even as they're sitting? You are so faithful to do things that I forget to do. I thank, I thank you, Lord, that the conclusion of this service and the life change that takes place is not based on my ability. And so I pray tonight, Lord, that as we're sitting here, you would nudge us like you've done me in that car, like you did to me in that car with my mom. I pray, Father, that you would... I pray you would push us back to the moment in time where the error took place. And folks, when he does that to you, just confess it. Say, I remember doing that, Lord. And say it out loud. You don't have to scream it, but just say it out loud. Say, I confess that. I remember doing that. I confess that it's wrong. I confess that I came into agreement with this ultimately a lie of the enemy. And I repent of that. I come out of agreement with that. Satan, I'm breaking up with you. I no longer see the way you see. I no longer feel the way you feel. I'm breaking up. And in the name of Jesus, you have to leave. You have to let go. You have to go on your way. And Jesus, I come, in, I come into agreement with you. I come into agreement with how you see me. I come into agreement with how you see this situation. And bring healing and wholeness in my life and the relationships around me. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Bring healing in my life, Lord. Bring healing in my marriage, Jesus. I, I, I lay down pride. I do. I bring healing in my marriage. Bring healing in the relationship with my son and my daughter. With my mom and my dad. With my next door neighbor. Father, teach me to release. Bring healing in my life, Jesus. It doesn't come even from the life change of someone else. It comes from your hand in my life. Father, bring comfort to the one who's been abused, who's been exploited, who's been lied to, who's been oppressed, who's been taken advantage of. 
in the name of Jesus, that does not have to define you anymore. And I come, with, I come out of agreement with how that made me feel in that moment. I come out of agreement with the fear. I come out of agreement with the terror. I come out of agreement with the low self-esteem and the no self-worth. I come out of agreement of despair that my future is never going to look any different or never going to be any better. I just come out of agreement with what I'm living in. And I come into agreement with your plan for my life where all things can be made new. Bring physical healing tonight in the name of Jesus, Father, while we're praying. Father, let our, let our response to you inward, in our inward healing bring physical healing in the name of Jesus. Be healed in the name of Jesus. Father, just remove strongholds. We come against every spirit of infirmity in the name of Jesus. Through confession and repentance, you have no more hold on our life. In the name of Jesus, you must be gone. All spirits of oppression, we come against you in the name of Jesus. Once confession and repentance has taken place and exposure has happened, you have no more ground, no more legal ground of oppression. In the name of Jesus, let go and release and be gone in the name of Jesus. Father, we just come into agreements. We, we come into agreement with all of your glory and love and, and prosperity and abundance and life, Jesus. I receive everything that you did in Jesus. I receive that you can do that in me tonight. Make us whole. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Just come into agreement with that. So, Father, we're going to spend these next few moments, and I pray you would just guide us in individual discussions, individual hearing of you, individual praying to you. In a moment, Pastor, uh, Pastor Dustin's going to come, and, and uh, he's your pastor. And um, Dude, I love your church. This is, this is so good. Like, Crin and I would go here. There's certain churches we've been to where I'm like, I don't think we go here. But we would go here. You, this, is, this is great. This is community. This is what it's supposed to look like. So if you uh, want to just spend some time in, in prayer among each other and if you need to move around and pray somewhere, we can do that. In a couple minutes, a pastor's going to come and dismiss us. But let's just tell him how much we love him. Can we sing? Can we worship?